do we see at Groundswell this year, the 26th and 27th of June, close to London, UK? Many friends of the podcast will be there. John Kempf, Abby Rose, Benedict Bozo, Henry Dimbleby, Claire Hill, Russ Carrington, Andy Cato, Tim Coates, and many, many more. See you there. Our guest today invested over 80 million in the last eight years into vertically integrated agroforestry companies in Latin America and Sub-Saharan Africa. What are their lessons learned and what would they do differently next time? Plus, what has changed in the last 10 years in the investor market and the consumer market? It seems like the consumer demand for clean, fair products is finally really starting to grow and become a significant pool with significant premiums, sometimes over 100%. This really changes the game for farmers, cooperatives, brands, etc. Welcome to another episode of Investing in Regenerative Agriculture, Investing as if the Planet Mattered podcast show where I talk to the pioneers in the regenerative food and agriculture space to learn more on how to put our money to work to regenerate soil, people, local communities and ecosystems while making an appropriate and fair return. Why my focus on soil and regeneration? Because so many of the pressing issues we face today have their roots in how we treat our land, grow our food and what we eat. And it's time that we as investors, big and small and consumers, start paying much more attention to the dirt slash soil underneath our feet. In March last year, we launched our membership community to make it easy for fans to support our work. And so many of you have joined as a member. We've launched different types of benefits, exclusive content, Q&A webinars with former guests, Ask Me Anything sessions, plus so much more to come in the future. For more information on the different tiers, benefits and how to become a member, check gumroad.com slash investingregionag or find the link below. Thank you. Welcome to another episode today with the co-founder and CEO of Moringa. Moringa Partnership is an investment fund which targets agroforestry projects located in Latin America and Sub-Saharan Africa. Welcome, Clement. Thank you, Karen. Good afternoon, everyone. To start with the personal question, how did you end up in agroforestry projects in soil, in agriculture? What was your journey towards that sector? Okay, so maybe I can present myself. Uh, Please, because yeah. it's, <laughs> it's a long story. So my name is Clément Chenot. Uh, so I'm 38 years old, I'm French. When I was a kid, uh, my goal was to work in forests and uh, work for the French Forestry Commission uh, in France. So that's what I did. I'm a biologist and a forest engineer of background. And uh, when I arrived there, uh, working for the French Forestry Commission, after my studies, I was also very sensitive to climate change and uh, tropical deforestation issues in the south. And I wanted to know more about that and work into that space. Of course, there are a lot of things to do in French forests. There are a lot of challenges in France and European forests. But definitely, there are more important challenges also affecting uh, tropical forests that relate to deforestation and climate change. So I made a change in my work, and I worked during two years for Ernst Young, you know, the auditing and consulting company. I worked on carbon finance, basically, and I was a, a auditor and consulting for big corporates on their climate change strategy. So I worked for Air France, for Lafarge, Total, groups like that. So it was great uh, to learn about uh, climate change and how it was dealt by companies. But I had the opportunity to come back to my roots. I was appointed head of business development of the international subsidiary of the French Forestry Commission. So ONF International that has been working for decades in tropical countries 
and specifically on sustainable forest management and the fight against deforestation. And what we acknowledge at that time, it was in 2009, is when you look at, uh, at deforestation and climate change, well, there are two issues to affecting uh, deforestation. It's agriculture. I mean, of course, conservation is, is an important issue, but uh, the drivers of deforestation are uh, food production and poverty. Basically, that's poor farmers that uh, need more revenues and that are cutting down trees uh, to increase their, uh, their livelihoods. And what we acknowledge also at that time, so more than 10 years ago, is that there are solutions, there are entrepreneurs, NGOs, that are developing techniques. So agroforestry is one of these techniques that allow to bring more revenues to the farmer while uh, restoring natural resources and protecting the forest. And what we acknowledged uh, so more than 10 years ago is that you've got solutions, you've got entrepreneurs, but what, what is needed is money, investment to scale up. And philanthropy and cooperation money is not enough. Private investments is needed. So that's why we started to discuss with banks and we partnered in 2010 with Edmond Rothschild, so the Rothschild Bank, to establish the Moringa Fund. So that was the beginning of, of the Moringa Fund. That's how I went to uh, raising money for uh, and developing uh, this investment fund uh, named the Moringa. And so can you describe, I mean, obviously I'll put a link below in the description and also you have a very interesting white paper out. And what can you describe for everybody that thinks I've heard the name, but I've maybe seen the fund somewhere, but what is the Moringa fund at the moment? We're now talking, let's say the end of 2021 or October 2021. What is currently the Moringa fund? So Moringa is an impact investment fund. So it's a fund based in Luxembourg. We rose more than 80 million euros, so 80 million euros. Our investors are, uh, it's a blend of uh, development finance institutions, such as the Glo Global Environmental Facilities, the African Development Bank, Proparco FMO from the Netherlands, and private investors. So the Rothschild Bank invested alongside uh, European family offices. What we do with private equity, we detected uh, small and medium enterprise agroforestry SMEs, uniquely based in Latin America and Africa. That's our focus. And we brought three to eight million euros of equity in agroforestry SMEs. So three to eight million per SME. That, yeah. And, and yeah. one of those SMEs is like a processing company. Yeah. What, 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 what should I imagine? I mean, with this is audio. So let's, let's paint the picture. We are in an agroforestry project large scale because it's always big. And uh, what what does this three to eight million do? What kind of company should we imagine? Yeah, so all these companies share four features. And then I will describe one concrete example. But all of these companies so developed agroforestry plantations at a large scale. So meaning hundreds or thousands of hectares. So I'm sure you're familiar. Agroforestry is combination of trees with crops and potentially livestock to have good level of food and timber production while restoring soils, while sequestrating carbon and restoring biodiversity. So that's the first features. Second pillar of our investment, all of this company is a social pillar. So we work in very poor area of Africa and Latin America. Uh, this company do not develop industrial plantations. You can do agroforestry by acquiring land and develop large scale plantations. So these are outgrowing networks. So each company is working with hundreds or thousands of farmers 
uh, gathered in cooperative of association and the companies bring uh, technical know-how. They bring financing to develop the plantations and access to markets. They are off-taking the products from the farmers. Third pillar of this company is the local processing. So all of these companies do, at, they've got factories. They do at least uh, primary processing for some of them, secondary processing. And for some of them, even they are marketing their own products. And the fourth pillar is the market. I could have started by that. That's really the business model is to work on two markets. So first market is the market for uh, sustainable and healthy food. Uh, typically in the US and Europe, where consumers are ready to pay a premium because the products, they've got good health properties and good sustainability properties. So all the, the companies are certified with, for example, BRC certified or ISO 22 certified. All the companies are organic certified, fair trade certified. So depending on the products, they've got different kinds of certification. Our objective is to get big problems. That's how we remunerate the good environmental and social practices implemented on the ground. And the second market that these companies are targeting are uh, the local markets, especially in Africa, where you've got a booming demand for food and, and fiber. So to give you two illustrations, uh, we can, uh, we've got 10 projects, but uh, maybe two emblematic projects. Uh, our first investment was in Nicaragua. So it's two companies, Nica France and Nica France Outgrowers. They are, it's a coffee cluster. They have renovated 2000 hectares of degraded coffee farms in the country using agroforestry techniques. It's a cluster of high quality coffee. And we have signed a deal with Nespresso that developed a capsule. The Nicaraguan capsule is, is coming from these investments. Ah, wow. That's how we get premiums. Other example is in Benin, uh, Tolaro. It's a cashew, cashew company working with 7,000 farmers, organic fair trade certified. That's the only factory in Africa that do unshelling, but also roasting the nuts, uh, producing cashew flour and butter. And, uh, now directly, uh, uh, selling uh, its products, especially in the United States with brands such as Whole Foods and others. So that's two illustrations of projects we've got in the portfolio. And you mentioned 10 companies, so about three to eight million. So you have invested everything or you're still in the investment phase of the fund? We are out of the investment phase. So we have deployed the capital. We're still doing uh, limited follow-on. So reinvestments within, within the portfolio line, but we are not doing any more new investments. And indeed, you know, we're at year eight uh, of the fund. Uh, the first closing was in 2013. So we're in the phase of exit. In fact, so our, uh, our model is to give, uh, to provide equity to these companies. Uh, when we invested, there were greenfield companies, startups. Now, uh, these companies, they, they've developed the plantation, built the factories. Uh, they are, their level of revenues is increasing. Some of the companies are profitable. So we're looking for exit partners. We still have some time, but we're uh, in active discussion with uh, several potential acquirers. And we are now in the last phase of the fund, which is to find partners to acquire our participations and pursue the, the development of the platforms that were created. And so what have you learned? What has been the 10 years or eight, eight, nine years? What is the main, what has changed as well? But it's a separate question. What, what are the main lessons learned on, on this space? We, we've learned, I mean, uh, Moringa is really uh, one of the first fund dedicated to, uh, to agroforestry. We were one of the very few 
funds over the past 10 years uh, investing in, in agroecology, agroforestry, especially in emerging countries. So it's a lot of risk uh, doing agroforestry, doing uh, private equity uh, in emerging countries. So we had to face a lot of challenges as um, as, as such pioneer and well, few lessons learned. The positive news, what is really positive is the evolution of the market. When we uh, we developed the fund 10 years ago, you know, we marketed the fund. You mean the market of consumers or the market of investors? No, 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 okay. no, the investors and talking about the investors, we... We met with 600 or 700 investors. Wow. So we've got 20 investors within the fund. At that time, nobody knew what was agroforestry. I mean, uh, we had to explain. <laughs> and now it's much more known. And on the market side, uh, clearly, on the market for healthy, sustainable food, I mean, uh, the organic segment, you've got very high growth there. So it's a market that was a niche, was a very small niche uh, 10 years ago. And now it's still a niche. Uh, it's organic market is 5% share of the, of the global food market. So it's still a niche, but with a high growth. So this, of course, is a good signal for investors. And in addition to that, uh, the, let's say on climate change and biodiversity, you've got more and more pressure to remunerate the, the environmental benefits of such activities. And that's also a very positive evolution of the market. So that's the good news, the good evolution. What was not uh, the less good news is the execution. I mean, agroforestry, agroecology on the paper is very promising, but on execution, it's... It all looks nice, these different layers yeah. of forestry on every infographic. It looks amazing. Yeah. Yeah. So we did great slides 10 years ago about uh, one plus one will make you three because of the synergies and so on. But in reality, it's much more difficult. I mean, uh, execution is a real challenge. The plantation level, uh, you have uh, higher costs, more complexity. So developing this, pl this plantation is difficult. We did it with outgrowing schemes. So this is also complex to manage. Developing factories in those geographies is not easy. It's more costly than factories based in Asia or even in Europe and United States. So you've got a lot of over costs. And the market is there with premium, but you have, it's a very strong fight. It's a very strong fight to get uh, premium and to get properly remunerated. Uh, that being said, uh, we've got uh, good news and very, uh, very good case stories. But maybe one of the lessons learned and thinking about the future, something we won't repeat is really important and long-term investments. So you need, I mean, to convert farms to agroforestry practices to develop these processing factories to access to the market it's, it's really long-run investments and Moringa was structured as a closed end vehicle of 12 years which is already long compared to, to convention but you need more time you need more time to really benefit from the added value from such investments so well, that's an important lesson learned is to be able to have the capacities to deal with technical uh, complexities and have a structure that is perennial and on the long run to capture the added value from such uh, practices. Do you think the market is ready? Like the investor market 10 years ago, I would say for sure not. But now I hear a lot of discussions actually, and I just saw Sequoia, the big VC launching an evergreen fund. Do you think the market might be ready for longer term vehicles or is that another fight? <laughs> the war, yeah. But... 
Do you want to learn how to invest? Or are you an entrepreneur and want to build companies in the regenerative food and agriculture space? Or do you work in big ag and big food and want to really move the needle? We have developed a new video course for you. Find out more on investinginregenerativeagriculture.com slash course or in the show notes description below. More than 10 years ago, so well, that's what we're working on. Uh, working on a new vehicle. I cannot make uh, any announcement today. I'm sorry, you, are, you will have to interview me in, in two months' time, but it's well okay. advanced. I'm working on a new uh, on a new structure to do long-term investments. And uh, I can say that we've got much better. I mean, 10 years ago, we, we did it at the closed-end vehicle because we were doing agroforestry in emerging countries, So investors wanted liquidity. They say, oh no, it's too risky. I want liquidity. I want to get back my money if I want. But so now we explain that it's not coherent with this type of investments. And we've got investors that are more aligned, uh, that understand first uh, that it's not the right strategy. And we've got long-term investors that uh, are keen to back such evergreen structure. So it's not yet done. So uh, we'll tell you if, if we'll check in in a couple of months. We'll check in, but uh, but more clearly, the, well, this has changed, and uh, and I, I really believe that the right strategy. I mean, on, on sustainable agriculture, you, you need to have a long-term perspective. And you mentioned, or I saw in the white paper as well, the importance of blended capital. What role has that played in Moringa, and is that still crucial, or was that really something? Because 10 years ago and eight years ago, et cetera, the, the sector was so much less developed. What do you see as the role for, for more blended capital approaches? 10 years ago, it was, uh, I mean, we won't have uh, closed uh, the Moringa Fund without public money. Also, the, we had a target to do 50-50. In the end, it's more 70 public, 30 private. But 10 years ago, it was impossible to raise such funds. And when you say 70-30, meaning 70% of the fund was from public entities, but they entered as an investor or they entered as a grant giver? Now, yeah, oh, I will come back on this. Uh, bon, on the blended structure, we don't have the, the layers. You know, there are a lot of fund structures with layers. No, for us, it's more uh, straightforward. It's uh, all the investors have got the same uh, rights. That being said, we've got a technical assistance facility alongside the fund, which is pure grants and which is uh, financed by the development finance institutions. And that's great. Huh? That's really uh, this TF facility helped us a lot. But at the fund level, it's a blend of public and private investors, but there are no layers. But without the public players uh, at the capital, we won't have uh, been able to have the private investors around the table. So that was for the first fund. Now, uh, this has changed. We see uh, more and more appetite uh, from the private sector, especially on topics uh, such as uh, related to carbon and climate change. Uh, that's really a hot topic for uh, many private investors. So we saw a lot of appetite. And, uh, voilà. That being said, uh, there are still important risks, Alors we, especially because we work in emerging countries. I would say that uh, more than the market, that's, we, we operate in... You mean currencies, you mean political risk? Yeah, yeah all those risks. And uh, having, uh, being backed by uh, development finance institution is great 
to get funding, uh, potentially they risk uh, private funding, but also it's a support when you've got problems in those uh, geographies. So definitely for the new vehicle, I'm looking forward having uh, much more private uh, investors and, and I'm really optimistic. But uh, in the space, I mean, uh, even though there are more investors, it's not massive to a point where you would say that the public sector has no more role to play. I mean, we're not there and we're not there at all. Maybe the next, next one. Yeah, yeah maybe in 15 or 20. Yeah, but right now, uh, there is a clear uh, support to be given by, by public investors. And you mentioned also something around the decommoditization of the value change or the value webs, as some people like to call it, because obviously chains come from, from a very colonial background. What have you done around it? I mean, you mentioned the deal with Nespresso and really going for these premiums. What have you learned there on this decommoditization piece that seems to be a hot topic now as well? It's really, uh, that was the basis of our uh, strategy uh, when we established the fund. And this is to get better prices. Uh, and uh, typically when you work in the uh, organic and fair trade uh, space, you get premium, but that are very limited. Maybe it's 10, 15 percent. Those premiums are, are even being reduced right now because there are more and more production. It's very difficult to compensate uh, the additional cost you may have, the additional risk. That's not enough. Where you've got uh, a real potential is uh, when you build a story around the products uh, and you, you do not only sell a commodity, which can be a good commodity. If you sell a commodity that is fair trade and organic certified, okay, but it's, it's a better commodity, but it's still a commodity. But where you, you can get much better uh, premium is when you're able, able to, to really uh, uh, market the story of your products, its benefits, And when you shortcut food value chains and you've got a lot of intermediaries and uh, today there is a demand from the consumers to shortcut, to have as limited uh, intermediaries as possible. So it's a clear demand from the consumers and these consumers are even able to pay better prices for those products. So that's where really we see a potential added value. And uh, you can get a premium, which are not uh, 10, 15 percent, but maybe 50, maybe 100 percent, 150. I won't tell you exactly. Uh, no, no, no. We don't want to know, but it's significantly more. Yeah. We did some premium over 100 percent. Uh, and this is because uh, you die from Benin or from Nicaragua or from Mali. You, dire you directly sell your products to a brand or a retailer based in the US or Europe. And that's a demand from the consumers. That's, I mean, I believe that's an evolution from the market, which is great, which is great to really favor those uh, environmental and social practices, such as agroecology, such as agroforestry. That being said, even so, it's the market is going into that direction. There is still, uh, I mean, uh, it's not that easy hein, when you rooted in, in Africa or, or uh, Or Latam, when you talk to Whole Foods or Walmart, I mean, it's not easy. Huh? It, and it's, it's a long work. That's one of the lessons learned, I told you. It's a long work to be registered, to, to get the trust. Import and export. Yeah. Because that, that's the problem. Because this player, why they work with intermediaries, with traders? Because they trust those traders to manage this complex value chain 
based in very uh, risky countries. To always have cashew nuts wherever they come from, but to always have the, the space in the supermarket full. Exactly. They want volume, they want the quality. So it's a long work. It's a very long work. But when you get it, when you're there, uh, I mean, that that's really a lot of potential added value. And, and that's how this type of companies can economically be, be viable. And would you describe almost that as the biggest shift in the last 10 years of that there is a much bigger consumer pool and also willingness of retailers to do something about it because if they don't want to and they just keep working with their normal intermediaries, you can knock on their door, but they won't open. Like the I believe that this demand was always there. Uh, that's my theory. That's my personal view. I believe you want to know what you eat. You want to know how it was made. You want to know... We want to know, but does the average Walmart or the average uh, consumer... The, yeah, but so what happened over the past decades, we've got these commodities, but that's a parenthesis in history. Through history, I mean, 50 or 60 years ago, our grandparents were buying local products. They knew how the products were made. But during these 50 to 60 years, we had this industrial food being developed with uh, coffee that you don't know. Coffee is coffee. It's a commodity. You don't know how the coffee was made. How? So, okay, a system was put in place of commodities without any information about the products. And right now, what is happening is that through the new technologies, so you've got different channels. So you've got the retails, but you can buy your food on internet. I mean, Tolaro is selling directly on Amazon. And uh, I mean, so you've got new food channels that competes with the conventional retail. And that's an opportunity because that's a demand from the consumers. And so you've got different channels. So that's for me, that's why, that's why I explain this tendency. And, and I believe this will continue. Uh, and, and through the traceability, through the traceability tools that are, that are being developed, uh, there will be more and more transparency, which will be very good. So that's how I explain what is happening on the market right now. And how have you, maybe personal question, but if so, how has your buying behavior as a person changed over the last 10 years? By everything you've learned and seen, like, are you buying very differently than 10 years ago? One of my, well, that's personal, but yeah. uh, one of my passion is gastronomy. <laughs> mm -hmm. no, I'm, I'm, I love wines and food. So I've always been uh, very sensitive. Uh, I always... Uh, I mean, I prefer to eat less, but very good products. You became more extreme, for sure. Uh, so that was a natural thing uh, of But definitely, uh, with what I did over the past 10 years, I'm more and more selective with what, I, uh, what I'm buying. And shifting gears a bit to the investing side, obviously, we're not giving investment advice, but you've talked to so many investors and are now talking again, and you've learned so much over the last 10 years. Let's say we're in, an, in a big theater and we're on stage and we're doing this interview live. And there comes a question from an investor in the room saying, okay, I've, I've read the books, I read the white paper, I saw some movies and I really want to get active in the space, but I don't know where and how. What would you tell him or her? Like, What would be a first step for someone that has money to invest, but doesn't know where to start? I mean, uh, today they've got uh, quite a lot of opportunities being developed. I mean, definitely, it's a market with opportunities. And now uh, you're seeing quite a lot of uh, investment uh, proposals, vehicles, uh, funds. So I believe you've got uh, opportunities. 
I would be very cautious about your partners. It's what I said. I mean, uh, it's a promising market. On, on theory, it can provide environmental social benefits and, and a return. But it's not as easy to get there. Agriculture is complex, even more agroforestry and agroecology. So select the right partner you want to work with. Because in the end, that's them that will make a difference. And, uh, and if I look at what we did over the past 10 years, what went well, what went less well, it's not about having the right business plan. It's really about having the right partners. And what do you believe to be true about regenerative agriculture that others don't? This question comes from John Kemp. So basically I'm asking what, where are you contrarian? Where do you see, I mean, one of them obviously is it's not as easy. But where, where do you see when you go to conferences, when you went to conferences now? Maybe you can go again in person, but where do you see that you think clearly differently than the sector about regenerative agriculture and food? Alors, I'm not sure if I'm contrary. If, I... if there's anything, obviously. <laughs> What I can say, my view on, I can give you my view on regenerative agriculture. I mean, I've seen examples and I have in mind um, large scale examples where really it's very convincing and, and, and it can work. One of the projects that for me that is the most striking, I don't know if you learn about this project through your podcast or you, you even discuss it, is the case of uh, Nachive in Brazil. So that's the Balbo family in Sugar. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Leontino Balbo that we worked with him in Brazil and he developed uh, sugar cane in, in regenerative. I mean, when we talk about regenerative agriculture, there are a lot of examples showing that it works well at a small scale. And you've got very limited uh, examples at an industrial scale. And I've seen uh, this example for me is striking. Uh, and uh, I mean, it's 10,000 hectares, it's sugar cane. It's, you've got better yields than conventional sugar in Brazil. Enfin, less cost. So it's really a success story. More biodiversity on the farm. Yeah. So, well, so you, you've got everything and at a large scale. And uh, it's a very nice uh, story. That being said, so having invested uh, for 10 years uh, in such type of projects, uh, I can tell you that uh, you need a lot of investments. And that's what the Balbo family made. Huh? They, they had to invest a lot on the long run. Time. And, and at the beginning, you've got more costs. Uh, you've got uh, less revenues. Penetration of the market is complex. More problems. Yeah. So I, I really believe, I mean, the model on the long run But on the short to middle run, it's very complex. The, the first five to 10 years, I mean, it's more investment. You need to be prepared to that. So I really believe in the model and on its benefits on the long run. But on maybe we hear too much uh, positive things and especially about what happened during uh, the first five to 10 years. Yeah. And what would happen like overnight? Obviously, you're working on a new structure, but... Let's say you are managing quite a large fund, let's say 1 billion or maybe let's say even 10. Like so, so resources, you've raised it. What would you do? I'm not interested in the exact dollars or euros, but I'm interested what would you focus on if you had to? And this could be even an, a very long term investment fund. Like you can choose the timing. But what would you, with all your knowledge and your experience, focus on if you had a large investment fund? Because I think this kind of money is starting to come to the space. Like we're getting, especially if more people start 
paying attention to the potential, to the, obviously the environmental and social. So we're getting probably more interest from investors, large-scale investors that need to put a lot of money in the space and we need to be ready. So I would like to start asking this question more and more to see, to get us ready to think not about 100 million, but about 1 billion or 10 billion. What would you do with so much assets on the management? Well, first of all, I would be uh, cautious because uh, for me, the most important is the deal flow and you need to have uh, good deals to deploy uh, such capital. And today, uh, even so, the, the sector is evolving and growing. There are still a uh, lot of steps to be done to deploy uh, such amounts. And it's useless to go too fast. I mean, they are especially to manage cautiously investors' money. You need to go step by step. And I would be cautious uh, to, to not to deploy too fastly. So um, two billion would be too much. One billion, okay. <laughs> but would you also invest in technology or, or inputs? Would you land or seaweed? It could be anything. You're completely free. You don't have to invest in the Moringa, in the Moringa thesis. It could be any way to deploy it. I see a lot of uh, potential in, uh, in vertical integration. Uh, so investing in value chains that uh, from farm to fork. So in, in production, so investment that will uh, develop uh, plantations, but also uh, processing, marketing and distribution. So on, on a vertical integration uh, basis, especially uh, for uh, healthy food uh, segments, because you want ex there, you want to know exactly what to eat. The second uh, sector where I see a lot of potential, and you know, when the Moringa Fund was established 10 years ago, that was one sector that uh, we really uh, targeted, but that fell and now is coming back, uh, is uh, the remuneration of environmental externalities, carbon, uh, carbon capture, biodiversity. I believe it's too early, but I see a very important market opportunity for the forest and ag sector in carbon. And uh, there I would invest. And if you could change one thing overnight, so you have, you no longer have the fund, unfortunately, of, of 1 billion, but you have a magic power to change one thing. Could be anything in the food and agriculture space. Could be better taste for everyone or our tongue development or consciousness of global transparency or, I don't know, making pesticides, chemical pesticides, illegal, whatever you want, what would you, but only one thing, what would you change? Alors, for me, it would be traceability because I really trust uh, people. And I, I mean, you, you don't want to consume products that uh, provoke deforestation, that uh, associated to child labor, uh, polluting uh, water, uh, destroying soil. I mean, nobody wants that, but you don't know. You don't know the negative things, but you don't know also the, the positive things. And I really believe that to change the food market, you need to favor, I mean, that's the, the green premiums, the notion of green premium, you need to favor the, the products that are really uh, bringing on social benefits and defavor the, the, the others. And for me, what is really needed is traceability. And today you've got tools that exist that need to be implemented. You need regulation to impose such a traceability. But for me, that's really what is needed from a sustainability uh, perspective. And 
What kind of tools do you see now are being ready to be deployed, to be used for that? What you see today, well, you've got uh, different tools that uh, inform you on the quality of the products themselves. So meaning as an end consumer, I can scan like the barcode. Yeah, you scan and you know, uh, okay, I'm eating chocolates, okay. So I know uh, if it's good or not for me because there's sugar in it. So in France, we've got uh, an application named Yuka. Uh, they've got different uh, applications everywhere. But that's about uh, health. But for me, the next step is to have uh, this kind of tool available uh, on sustainability, on where does the product come from, who wears the intermediaries, and then what were the, the potential environmental and, and social impact associated to such products. There, there is a lot to be done because um, the products, all these intermediaries may, may difficult access to such uh, information and such tool. But uh, yes, yeah, there are already some, some tools available. And uh, for me, what is a necessity is to develop this tool at a large scale and make them compulsory in the end. I mean, it should be regulated and it should be something uh, required. And then do you think, because I've seen the wave of, of some of these tools, I think 10 years ago, where you could scan some barcodes and some, it gave a sort of score, etc. But it felt at least at that time, but maybe it was too early, it didn't really take off. Like it was a few people only scanned it. Like it wasn't enough to actually start a movement, but maybe now 10 years later, we are in, in a different space. Uh, how I see this, it's not only the consumers. For, for, it's also for the retailers. Uh, it's for everyone. I mean, for me, what is important is to have transparency on food value chain. Then myself, I'm not a campaigner. I mean, I cannot spend my, t I mean, I don't have time to check the, inf <laughs> I mean, to check the information. And But you're saying then that the retailer now doesn't know, doesn't have that transparency. I think many people don't know that actually you're a retailer. Exactly. Yeah. So I, I mean, it's like the blockchain system. You don't know who will control, but it's like blockchain. You have access to the information that is inviolable. So you cannot cheat. And then everybody from consumers, the retailers, the NGOs, uh, I mean, everybody can uh, react by saying, well, okay, there is a problem there. And I mean, it should be massified to work. And I mean, it's not necessarily for me, uh, the consumers that need to check everything. I mean, you have no time to do that. But by having transparency and access to the information, then yes, it's like blockchain for me. It's a system that will auto-control auto-control and favor uh, good practices and penalize uh, negative practices. Yeah, I think it's it might be a shock to many that because of so many intermediaries, also many retailers and brands don't really know at the moment where the end farm was or where the end, where their cacao beans are produced, which you would imagine that for a risk perspective, et cetera, they would know. But actually, because of so many steps in between, it's not really clear if the coffee was grown in Nicaragua or somewhere else, or even in Nicaragua, where exactly? And that kind of traceability is already fundamental if you're running a coffee company, let alone if you're the consumer. But for also for the coffee company, it makes a lot of sense. And it's good to rely on uh, the good habits of, of the consumers, but I believe it's not uh, enough. And that's where, uh, I mean, in the end, there should be have regulation and to say, if you want to market coffee, you have to prove that your coffee is not associated to deforestation. In the end, you, okay, consumer habit is good, but uh, in the end, there, there should be some, some regulation about that. Um, I want to thank you so much, 
for your time today and definitely we'll be checking in soon in, in a couple of months on the new initiative. I'm not going to call it a fund on the new vehicle <laughs> or new approach or whatever, whatever shape and form it will take. But I'm very curious to unpack and to see what you are doing differently, obviously, and that's what you've learned, etc. But thank you so much for the current overview of what the Moringa Fund is as we're speaking in October 2021. Okay, thank you very much uh, for our exchange and uh, I will be very glad to, to be in touch and I will keep you informed about uh, our next uh, developments. Please do so. Thank you so much. Thank you, Kun. If you found the Investing in Regenerative Agriculture and Food podcast valuable, there are a few simple ways you can use to support it. Number one, rate and review the podcast on your podcast app. That's the best way for other listeners to find the podcast and it only takes a few seconds. Number two, Share this podcast on social media or email it to your friends and colleagues. Number three, if this podcast has been of value to you and if you have the means, please join my membership community to help grow this platform and allow me to take it further. You can find all the details on gumroad.com slash investingregionag or in the description below. Thank you so much and see you at the next podcast.